Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad of ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. My name is Tony. I live in the northwest of England. And I am Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out, new distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity, or desktop, or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro, or better understand one which has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we will each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three or four weeks, and use it as much as possible perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all our trials and tribulations, fixes, what we liked and what we didn't. Tony and I prefer to look at distros which would be kind to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. While I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, And we will also divulge what hardware we are using and how we think the hardware may have affected the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 31, recorded on March 23rd, 2022. This episode we are taking on Slackware 15, Zorin OS 16 Professional, and Kimra OS. We are happy to receive suggestions of distros you'd like us to try. And we are joined once again by special guest Joshua Hawk. Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. Let's give Josh another startup slot. If you're back here next month, we'll have a desk for you in the newsroom. What's new with you, Josh? <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I'm looking for a, a new job currently. Uh, I graduate in about a month now, um, and I hope to get an IT job um, as soon as possible. Other than that, I've been hard at work keeping up with both of my classes. They are... Uh, Easy, but a lot of work. <laughs> I, I have uh, been testing Ubuntu 2204, the daily builds, and I'm using ZFS on root, which is uh, what I'm using right now to record and everything. It has been a really good testing period. I have several bugs that need reporting. I uh, haven't got the time to do that yet, but I'm going to eventually. I did create a new account on Ubuntu 1 because apparently my other account, I don't know, got lost in the weeds. (laughs) So GNOME 42, I think that pretty much saved this release of Ubuntu for me because of all the new features that it has. I, I don't know if I would have been able to really go through with using Ubuntu if they would have kept 41 version. I'm not, I just, it's not as good compared to 42. 42 is really, really nice. Uh, ZFS on root has been great. Um, I really love the automatic snapshotting feature. Um, you can easily roll back with that, and it's really nice, and it's built into Grub. But, kind of, because one of the bugs I have to report has to do with that. So Grub right now is not adding my snapshots to its menu, so I should be able to just go into a menu option called Ubuntu History, select that, and then I can look at all my snapshots, but that's not showing up for some reason. And um, I try going into Grub Customizer, uh, which actually shows the ZFS snapshots. I don't know why that shows it, but the actual Grub menu when I boot up doesn't, but that's uh, kind of an issue I got to report, definitely. 
But uh, that's about all for me, really. Uh, What's going on with you, Dale? I installed Debian testing bookworm on my desktop, replacing Pop! OS. I've been pretty impressed with it overall. I want to thank Josh for his help installing the uh, NVIDIA binary driver. We got, at the the time, uh, about four weeks ago, Nova 41.3 working with the NVIDIA binary driver and Waylon, though that was a short-lived victory because I found out that some of my apps that use Electron are not compatible yet. Upon arriving home Monday, I updated my desktop, which had about 470 updates. I was kind of nervous, but it was installed with, uh, with no issues. However, Tuesday, there was another group of updates. There is an update to the entire Xorg server, which usually I would be very welcome to. Though this one really has me puzzled, and I haven't had time to research it. Apps dist upgrade in order to uh, satisfy the installation, wants to remove my NVIDIA binary drivers. Obviously, that's not going to go well if I let it do that. I'm not sure if I'll be able to reinstall them. I know the uh, Nouveau drivers are updated, so that's a good thing, I guess. On the bright side of that, I am now using GNOME 42 Beta. This is really surprising because this is Debian after all. I installed two crucial MX500 250GB SSDs on my desktop. I intend on using them with ZFS in a stripe, they call RAID-Z, to increase the performance of the VMs. I want to see how much of an improvement it'll make. If it doesn't, then I'll just end up with an extra SSD, so in my book that's a win-win. Installing Debian testing, then uh, restoring my backups and installing all my applications took up a good part of the week so the rest of my week i spent watching youtube and discovery plus on my tv and i also did the usual video calls with remote fins i guess uh i'll report back how my uh zfs stripe does with my uh vms in the next episode how about you tony thanks dale uh so apart from having two holidays since the last show uh, I've been editing audio for both Distro Hoppers and Minkcast. If you listen to Minkcast, they're a little behind on posting the show audio for from the two weekly recordings, so I volunteered to help a little. I've the two halves of one show, and I'm currently working on another, which I completed uh, one half of that show last night. But Audacity was being a pain, and it took absolutely ages to save one of the projects I was editing, so I didn't lose any changes made. For some reason, uh, the job, which normally takes a few minutes, was taking over an hour. It transpired that during the process, the driver I was saving the data to, one of my 4TB backup drives, had failed, along with the three-plus hours of work I'd already done. So not only did I have to restart the audio project, I thought I'd now have to buy a new backup drive. But I decided I'd try and reformat the drive as all the data seemed to have disappeared and I've got it all backed up on another 4 terabyte drive. So I fired up Gparted and deleted the partitions, created a partition table, reformatted to ext 4 and it seemed to work okay. And when I remounted the drive, it was seen by the PC, and I wrote a few small files to it, and it seemed to to do them okay. So then I tried, you know, putting some of the backup data back on it with quite a large file. 
and it was just crawling. I was barely getting USB 1 speeds out of it, definitely not USB 3. So it's either the drive is on the way out or it's the actual caddy and the USB controllers failed. So anyway, you know, I'm going to have to get a new backup system. So today I just ordered a um, toaster rack with two bays on it and a new six terabyte drive so that will be arriving via amazon tomorrow what brand drive did you get i got another seagate but it's one of the uh, i can't remember what they call it but it's quite a good one okay all the um reviews that i was uh, reading online it it was averaging 4.5 which on amazon's pretty good yeah i love seagate so that's good yeah, it is a Seagate, so, uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the caddy that failed was a Seagate, but... Uh, yeah, but those things, you can never you can never guess what's going to happen with them, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, but anyway. So, one, once the new one arrives, I'm going to uh, have a go at pulling uh, the drive out of the caddy and see if the drive's still working and it's the caddy's fault. But uh, I'll report back on that next time. So, uh, Moss, what's been happening with you? Well, I love those toasters. I actually was starting to brag about my toaster, and I tried to look it up, and they don't have them for sale anymore, so wouldn't matter. <laughs> this wave wavelength toaster I got is just the greatest thing I've ever had. Anyhow, uh, we sold my wife's old Moto G7 power phone on Swappa for a good price. We got some money from the insurance company to pay for the repair on our Hyundai Accent hatchback, but the body shop found there was a prior accident which was not reported, so we have to pay even more money to get that fixed, as that's not covered by insurance. The car should be ready soon. I've done a couple of episodes of Mintcast and several of Full Circle Weekly News since our last show. I got a pie hole set up on my Pi 3B with help from Bill and Joe at Mintcast, and I'm finally ready to file my taxes. That's too much to go on. Let's move on to updates. Updates, where we discuss what we have learned about distros we've already reviewed. I'm still waiting for Farron OS 2022, but Dominic has integrated the new Plasma, and it's just a matter of time. It's beta time for Ubuntu in all its flavors, with release next month, to be followed shortly, probably in June, by the new Mint. And I am running LMDE5 LC on one of my machines. Dale? Solus release Budgie Desktop 10.6, which actually, in my haste in typing this up last night, I don't think we can call it Solus anymore because Joshua Strobel is no longer with Solus. So I guess I should say. I can't. Anyone, what is the um, group that. They're still calling it the Solus Project. Budgie has been split off from it, though. Okay, because they they he renamed the uh, the buddy buddies a bungee. That's what it was. Right. Yep. So I guess I could say the B actually technically correct. Buddies a bungee released uh, ten point six. But in any case, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Slack will release version seven point five of their open box edition. It has kernel five point fifteen point twelve, and the latest updates from the Slackware current branch. It is available in 32 and 64-bit. I was expecting a yearly release of Netrunner Linux, 
but it uh, hasn't been released yet. That's the Blue Systems. They're the ones that uh, develop uh, KD Plasma. So how about you, Tony? Yeah, so uh, as Moss has already indicated, LMDE 5 has been released, and I downloaded the ISO. I've installed it on boxes uh, on my laptop. I'm, a, I'm going to do it on the desktop as well, but I haven't got around to that yet. I've not had much chance to play around with it yet. I only installed it a couple of days ago, uh, and I've been busy since then. But uh, it looks good. Uh, I'm liking the uh, cinnamon. Although it would be nice if you had an option of a Mate DE ISO. Yes, I know you can install it, but you don't get all the mint configuration of uh, Mate if you uh, install it after the fact. But the cinnamon does look really sharp, so... Uh, I have a solution for you, Tony. All you have to do is update to uh, Debian testing, and cinnamon turns into mate. <laughs> I've done it, and that's exactly what happens. It still says it's cinnamon, but it looks exactly like mate does on mint. Cool. Okay. So, Josh, what have you got for us? So, uh, Fedora 36 is in beta testing now, um, and it's looking like it's on track for an April 19th release. That means Fedora 34 is about done with, so you should upgrade before May 17th. So now we move on to beautiful failures. Beautiful failure is what we tried and failed to install or run this month. I played with Esquilus Linux mentioned last month for a while. The distro, based on Moksha and Bodhi, is just not made to look modern. Lots of hard, squared boxes. I'm not happy with the fact that you can't actually have your own login. The password can be changed but reverts to the original in a short time. I also spent some time on MX21 and managed to get some things done after bruising my brain considerably, but decided it was not for me. Both distros have left my drives. But I also have an unfailure. After all those installations you've heard me complain about, where installing Arch, Endeavor, or Manjaro on a multi-boot system results in kernel panic messages at boot, a fix is out there. It involves simply copying and pasting a line from the boot.config of the Arch-based distro to the boot.config of the distro which is controlling Grub. Rather than discuss it in depth, there is a link in the show notes to the video covering it, which was given us thanks to Londoner. The guy making the video did, like me, not have an issue with Arco Linux. I wonder why. Josh? So, um, I tried to upgrade LMD5 to Debian testing, as I mentioned before. <laughs> it was somewhat of a failure. Uh, I got it to work, but for some reason, Cinnamon was all messed up looking. In fact, Cinnamon didn't even look like Cinnamon anymore. It looked like Mint's implementation of Mate which I still just don't understand why. It just, it's weird. It didn't install Mate. It didn't uninstall Cinnamon. It just kind of like morphed them together. It was just strange. Other than that, it was all upgraded to Debian testing, but I could not live with Cinnamon looking so strange. So I just nuked and paved it. <laughs> One other small failure to mention, uh, when I nuked and paved, I installed Ubuntu 22.04 and again used ZFS on root. Problem being is that my HP Stream laptop with dual core and four gigabytes of RAM, uh, ZFS quickly ate up all the RAM and it started swapping almost immediately. Uh, the reason for this is ZFS caches everything it can into RAM for faster access using its uh, ARC technology. 
Uh, to save everyone's ears, I won't fully explain how it works, but long story short, I limited the cache to one gigabyte of RAM, and everything was happy once more. Oh, so Dale, uh, what do you got? I didn't have any time for uh, exploration this uh, go-around. Aw. Yeah, I was up to my neck in, in Slackware. <laughs> Slackware doesn't fit very well around the neck. Yeah, it has a nice uh, choking effect. <laughs> <laughs> Can't breathe. Tony? Uh, yeah, again, nothing from me this month, so shall we move uh, ahead and get Dale's review of Slackware 15? If he can breathe. <laughs> Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Slackware 15. They're not dead yet. It has a special place in my uh, my heart. I first uh, started my Linux journey about 1995. I believe it was like the fall of 1995 with a help from a friend. I think there was like some 24, three and a half inch floppies. and That was a f- fun time. I was so glad when they release the uh, next version on the CD thanks to Walnut Creek's agreement to help out Patrick with the Slackware project. So let's get into it here. Slackware is the oldest currently maintained Linux distro. Version 1 was released on July 17th of 1993 by Patrick Volkerding and he is still the maintainer. Slackware supports 32-bit, 64-bit computers along with a port to ARM's 32-bit SOCs. It was started as a side project and named Slackware by Patrick. He started out using Soft Landing Linux System, or SLS for short, which was considered to be quite buggy. He used it for some projects while attending Moorhead State University or MSU in Moorhead, Minnesota. His artificial intelligence professor asked him to show him how to install Linux. He took notes detailing the fixes that were needed after an SLS installation. While working with his professor, they discovered that the fixes actually took as long or longer to uh, apply the fixes than it did to actually install SLS. Frustrated, the professor asked Patrick if the installation disk could be updated with these changes so that the post-install fixes were not necessary. Well, that is the beginning of Slackware, though he did have no intentions of calling it a new distro or releasing it to the public. He figured SLS would eventually release a new version fixing what he had fixed. After a few weeks, many of the SLS users were asking for a new version. Patrick's friends urged him to provide his fixes on an FTP server. Eventually, Patrick did so, titling it as an SLS-like system. He received so many positive responses that he decided to uh, release it as a new distro, calling it Slackware. He asked the system administrator of MSU's FTP server for permission to put Slackware, the uh, installation disk, on it. The first release consisted of 24 three and one half inch floppy disk images. As the news spread of the new distro, it became very popular, overloading the FTP server and causing it to crash often. 
This new release eventually caught the attention of the people at Walnut Creek CD-ROM, which offered their uh, space on their FTP server. Um, as a side note, Walnut Creek CD-ROM, I think I mentioned this in my uh, FreeBSD review, uh, they uh, were a distributor of uh, open source uh, um, software via um, their FTP or through uh, mail order on their uh, CDs, and etc. Slacker is a bit of a unique distro. They make no assumptions as to what you want to do with your installation. It is a clean slate to build from, with the exception of your choices that you make during installation. They don't use systemd. It began using a BSD style in its system using one script for each rendering level. After version 7, they added systemv init, or sysv init for short. Sysv init uses multiple uh, subdirectories for the many scripts. For compatibility's sake, Slacker will allow both init scripts to be used so it doesn't break other software packages. And as a side note, the uh, sysvinit stands for System 5 Release. It dates back to the uh, the Unix days. System 5 was one of the uh, releases. When it comes to packages and repositories, that is where things get a bit complicated. There is no official repo, as the only official packages are the ones provided on the installation media or one of the Slackware mirror sites. Slackware's packaging system uses compressed tar archive, referred to as tar.gz. These are binary files along with other supporting files. There are many other ways to install packages. There are third-party repositories where people offer pre-compiled binaries or offer scripts that will compile the software from source. That is where the problem arises called dependency hell. If one group chooses one version of libraries to compile the binary, that is fine. The problem begins when you download from a different group that is using a different version. When you go to recompile to update your binaries, you could have conflicting versions which will result in a failed compile attempt. To add insult to injury, it's not as simple as just changing the version. That is because you could end up breaking something else that depends on the version you're removing. It can go downhill very fast. As you can see, Slackware does not offer any dependency conflict resolution. This is how I learned by trial and error with a heavy lean towards the uh, error part to uh, compile software. I spent a lot of time on Walnut Creek's ftp.cdrom.com FTP server or Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri's FTP server wuarchive.wstl.edu. I remember that by heart. I typed that in so many times. <laughs> to try to find the uh, correct version of the uh, file to uh, fix my uh, dependency problems. Sadly, I tried going back there uh, last night, and the servers are gone. It, it was... Well. I mean, I can understand I'm not really needing them, but it's just kind of, you know, part of... I, I don't want to call it my childhood because I was using Linux when I was in my teens, but you get what I'm saying. I will end here because... It could easily go on for an hour or more. I mean, we're talking about, you know, what, 29 years? We're talking about the oldest distro. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 
Um, if you want to learn more about the history, I suggest listening to episode 219 of Linux User Space. It's a great podcast. Dan and Leo do an excellent job going over the the history, and uh, I really enjoy listening to them. So my hardware, well, I chose my uh, my Dell because of uh, Slackware's questionable dual booting ability. Spoiler alert. I used my, uh, it was a uh, Dell Inspiron 13. It has an Intel i5-6200U at 2.3 gigahertz using HD Graphics 520, has 8 gigs of RAM, and 128 gigabyte SSD. Installation ease and issues. I want to point out that it took three times to install Slackware. I've never had to do that before. <laughs> it's usually, I'm probably one of the few people that, goes through the install with no issues. It's, I don't want to say I'm bored, but it's more of, to me, like using Calamaris. But I'm just used to it, I guess. For some reason, the first attempt wouldn't boot unless I used the boot disk that was created during the installation. That was with the UEFI enabled. I tried using the CSM uh, compatibility support module or the you know, BIOS mode, and it still wouldn't boot unless I used the uh, boot disk. After clearing the UEFI in the laptop and deleting all the partitions on the SSD, I tried a third time, and it tried to boot from the SSD, but it got an error not being able to load the kernel. After some research, I found out that the installation didn't install the UEFI kernel stub. Um, that's what, uh, sort of like uh, like the RAMFS, it's it, what uh, UEFI loads in the memory to execute the kernel. So, once I copied it from the USB stick, it booted fine off of the uh, SSD. So, technically, I never did successfully install Slackware. Personally, three times was enough because it's not a quick install. So, let's move on to the installation. I downloaded the install DVD ISO and wrote it to a USB stick. I can't remember. I probably used Popsicle or used DD. I can't remember. There is also a live ISO that allows you to boot Slackware to see how it looks before installation, just like you know, other Linux distributions. I booted to a text screen, giving me the chance to select a non-US keyboard. The default was US, so I just pressed enter. The next screen is the normal terminal login screen if you don't have a window manager or desktop environment installed to start at boot up. There were instructions to... Uh, create a partition of type Linux, along with the recommendation to create a swap partition using the type Linux swap. Further instructions are given if you want to enable the swap partition before installation. From there, I logged in as the root user with no password. I use cfdisk to create my partitions. That's sort of my preferred command line uh, partitioner because of the uh, Incurses interface. I prefer it over uh, FDisk. If you understand FDisk, it's actually quicker to do FDisk, but I don't remember the, remember that. Uh, you know, I don't use it enough to remember them. I guess I just don't take the time to remember it. Habits are hard to break. I created a 600 megabyte EFI partition, 4 gigabyte swap, and the rest of the space for root. I wrote the changes and exited CFDisk. From there, I typed setup to load the installation. 
The installation was using an NCurses menu interface. If you're familiar with FreeBSD, Debian, or Void Linux, you will recognize the NCurses interface. If you're not, it is a graphical interface that is used in terminal-based applications. If you're old enough to remember DOS, it looks like an old DOS uh, application. A very simple interface using your keyboard, arrow key, spacebar, and the enter key. Once in the installation, I selected Set Up My Swap Partitions. Since I properly configured it during the uh, installation, the swap was automatically selected. I pressed enter continue, which asked the question of wanting to check for bad blocks during the formatting. I, I selected no. Once it was completed, it showed me um, how it's going to look in my etc slash sf tab. After pressing enter, I was asked where I wanted to install Slackware. It defaulted to the only option of slash dev sda3. I pressed enter and chose the quick format option using ext4. The other options were ext2, 3, jfs, riserfs, btrfs, f2fs, and xfs. Once completed, it showed me what it'll look like in the slash etsy slash fs tab. And that's etc. I'm just so used to calling it etsy. Another habit. <laughs> but it's so cute and cuddly. At least you don't call the other F stab like a lot of people do. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, don't, don't, don't get me started on the whole cute, cute, cutie thing. I mean, yeah, I do use some abbreviations like that pronounced, but it's just the fact that it's called cute. <laughs> I don't know why it just bothers me. <laughs> well, I'm sure someone thought it was just cute. Yeah. Let's move on. The next screen asked if I wanted to format the EFI partition, so I selected yes. It automatically selected FAT32 as the partition type, which is really good because it needs to be FAT32. Just like in the previous partitions, it showed me what the FSTAB information looks like. The installation continued on the installation source selection. You have the option of installing from DVD, CDD, USB stick, hard drive, NSF, FTP, and the uh, HTTP Samba, or a uh, drive mounted in your uh, file system. I chose the USB stick. The installation now wanted me to choose my software categories. The default is everything. To name a few, they are documentation, system libraries for KDE, XFCE, networking, development, etc. This is followed by selecting the prompt mode. This is an important option to select. The recommended is full, which installs everything, which is a little over 15 gigabytes. The other options like menu, expert, or newbie provide uh, information on every package. If you have plenty of time to kill, go ahead and choose menu or newbie. I'm not saying it's bad. Actually, it's quite detailed. It is takes quite a while because once you're in that mode you must finish it there's no exit unless you turn off the computer because I've installed Slackware many times I chose the full if this was a system that I was going to be using for a long time I would have gone through and selected one of the uh, more detailed ones probably I don't know probably menu or I don't think I'd do newbie because that's too detailed and uh, go from there so after about 10 minutes or so I finished. The next screen is a nice feature that most distros don't do. I was asked if I wanted to create a boot disk. It's sort of like an emergency boot disk to uh, boot your system up in case something happens to the uh, 
Lilo, which is what he uses instead of Grub. Since I had a spare disc, I decided to do it. I scanned for the, uh, the stick, and a window popped up asking if it was the correct one. Once completed, it asked if I wanted to create another one. I just chose to continue with the installation. The installation saga continues with the notification that I am using UEFI. The installation explains that Lilo, the Linux loader, only works with computers using a BIOS. I also want to point out Patrick's been using Lilo since the inception of, of Slackware. The question of install it or skip was presented. Since I created the EFI partition, I chose to skip it. eLilo is the Linux loader for UEFI-based systems, and I chose to use it. A follow-up question of creating a boot menu was, uh, was asked. I chose to create one. It had the caveat that you shouldn't do this on an Apple computer because they said bad things can happen. The next question asks if I wanted to enable the GPM application. It allows you to do cut and paste in the terminal. The default is yes, so I just selected it. Wait, there's more. Install Slackware, they said. It'll be fun, they said. <laughs> now I get to choose to configure the networking. It starts off with the name of the computer. The next question is the domain. It requires one, so I just type in local. I don't have any need for VLANs. They're a virtual LAN, so I just skip that. The next is the list of how you want to uh, configure your network. You can use static, DHCP, network manager, and a couple others. I chose network manager. It asked me to confirm my choices, and I did. The never Ending installation continues with me asking what services I want enabled at boot up. You can enable SSH, Samba, NFS, etc. I lifted that to default, but I deselected SSH because I had no need to SSH into it. The remaining were the regular services like cron and syslog. I was asked if I wanted to select screen fonts, though at this point I just wanted the installation to be over. You have to remember, people, this was my third time. <laughs> so I passed. The time had come to select my time format. Yes, let's groan together. <sighs> Dad joke. My options were hardware clock or UTC. Now, this is a tricky one. If you're coming from Windows, you will want to choose no. Hardware clock is set to local time. Most Linux distros will default to using UTC, so I'm just going to stick with that. The following screen is your time zone selection. And the questions continue with default text editor. The default is NVI with other choices of Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. And our trusty old Vim. I don't know the others. I unfortunately know Vim, so I chose the default. Now I get to choose my default window manager for X. Since I only have Plasma installed, it sounded like a... Uh, Good choice. The setting of the root password is the last task. Once I completed, I pressed the enter, which brought me back to the main installation screen. I chose the uh, exit. I was prompted to remove the USB stick, which some distros don't ask you to do. The last menu asked if I wanted to power off, reboot, or I could enter the, uh, the uh, shell to make any last minute changes. Post-installation hardware facts and issues, I didn't have any. Ease of use, I send in as root so I could create my user account using the add user utility. 
I add my user to the recommended groups like wheel, audio, video, etc. I rebooted by typing shutdown-r now. The R means reboot, and now means now. <laughs> and then I, uh, I signed in upon reboot, because on that shutdown command, you can actually set a time for when it reboots, just FYI. I typed start X, and a few seconds later, I was at the Plasma desktop. I was surprised to find that XORD was already configured for use. This was due to the laptop being all Intel and support is in the kernel and uh, openly available. By default, Slackware will boot into run level 3, which is a non-graphical called console multi-user mode with uh, networking. 2, I believe, is without networking. Slackware uses run level 4 for a graphical login. Some uh, distros will use 5, but 4 is uh, what Slackware is using. I could have enabled 4 to boot into SDDM. Instead, I booted to the console and typed start x to start xorg. It reminded me of using Linux back in the 90s, uh, before we had the uh, login managers and, and such. The same goes for Windows um, back then, because when I was running DOS, you had to type in win to uh, start Windows 3. Well, enough nostalgia. Plasma was at 5.23.5. Framework was at version 5.9. Nothing. Qt was at version 5.15.3. And the kernel was at version 5.15.19. Since it's been a while, I decided to follow the documentation along with some uh, helpful YouTube channels. The uh, Slackware document project, which the link is in the show notes, is a great resource. There are many how-to documents and a search function. I found the search uh, function quite handy, and I do want to give you a caveat. There's multiple languages, so if you click on a link and you can't read it, go back, find another one. I had a very bad habit of finding ones written in French and no Francais. Up next was configuring the package manager. By default, Slackware uses PKG tool, or what they call package tool. It is an incursus menu-driven interface. It allows you to install or remove packages that are available locally on the file system or on the installation USB. There are also command line tools called install PKG, remove PKG, and upgrade PKG. These are similar to apt and DNF, except there is no conflict resolution. Package tool and other command line tools expect you to know what you're doing. With that said, packages provided by Slackware should have limited issues as they are pre-compiled binaries, and all the libraries that are on there are all compatible with one another. Slack PKG is a great addition to Slackware. It has been around since version 7, but not officially used until version 12. It uses the aforementioned command line tools. Before it was created, updating Slackware's packages was tedious. You needed to check the change log on their website to see what has been updated. Then you need to find the file on one of Slackware's mirror sites and download it. After downloading it, you use install pkg or package tool to install it. Slack package automates this process, though you still need to know that there are updates available, as there is no notification system in Slackware. Like in the previous utilities, there is no dependency or conflict resolution. 
I configured a mirror to use with Slack package. It's an easy process. You just go into the config file, remove the pound symbol. Some younger generation would recognize it as the hashtag in front of the URL listing for the mirror. And slash etc slash slack pkg slash mirrors. I needed to then update the GPG uh, key, which is what the mirrors use for their encryption of the packages to verify the uh, authenticity. Once configured, it works similar to other utilities like apt or DNF, Slack package search, Slack package install, Slack package remove, etc. Actually, it's kind of similar to Void's um, package management system, the, the naming anyways. Once I updated the system, I checked the versions of a few packages that were installed. Firefox ESR was at 91.7.1, which was the current version available, and Plasma remained at the 5.23.5. Now, in order to install packages that are not provided by Slackware, I needed to use third-party repositories. I chose Slack Builds because I had limited time due to work being busier than it was last month. I wanted to see how it worked and seemed to have quite a few binaries. I didn't have a lot of time to wait for packages to compile or read through long dependency lists. I downloaded Signal and Telegram, they installed with no problems. I tried by hand at installing Flatpak. It required a few dependencies and some environment variables to uh, be set. I want to thank the group in the Linux saloon for their commentary on getting this to work. As I said, I didn't have a lot of time to devote to this level of configuration. Once installed and configured, it worked fine. A definite plus for Slackware. I'm sure the Slackware Greerbeard's veins are popping out of their foreheads by now. The other third-party sources and utilities will be listed in the show notes. And I'll just name off a couple here. Um, Slack only. Um, they're binaries that are built from Slack builds. And uh, let's see, Slack Package Plus is an updated version of Slack Package. And it allows... Uh, for dependency resolution. And one other one is one that they based around Debian's apt, which is called slapt-git, S-L-A-P-T-git. And it works very similar on how uh, apt works. Memory and disk use. There was about 18 gigabytes of space on the SSD, though I think some of that was the size of the flat packs. And uh, 559 megabytes of memory used by uh, the free-h command, which is pretty, pretty small for, uh, for Plasma. Ease of finding help. I used the Slackware documentation quite a bit and the old TechBloke YouTube channel. Slackware uses the forums at linuxquestions.org for support. Plays nice with others. I didn't have a chance to try this. Lilo and eLilo support dual booting. You could also configure Grub as it is installed. Stability. Slackware is a very stable distro once any uh, dependency issues are resolved. Similar distros to check out. Slackle and Salix OS. They are compatible with Slackware packages. I haven't used Salix, but Slackle, which I had reviewed previously, is more like a regular Linux distro. It just uses, you know, Slackware's uh, packages. Now for my, uh, my writings here. The ease of installation for a new user. There's going to be a lot of caveats here. I'm just going to say three. This by no means is a new user. This is not something a Windows user is going to go to. 
when I say new user, maybe new to Linux, if they have uh, the desire to learn and read documentation and be able to parse it. An experienced user, I'd say probably six, because it all depends on your experience level, because you could have a person that's used Linux for 20 years but never has compiled anything, and it's completely you know alien to them. So hardware issues, well, we're using the same kernel, so it's pretty much 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, I'm going to say 10 out of 10, even though I didn't use their, their forums. If I, if I would have to back up a little bit, I could say at least an 8, if not a 10. Uh, the ease of use, this is where your mileage may vary. I'm going to go in the middle of the road and give it 5, just because it's a fish-out-of-water type of experience. It's Linux, looks like Linux, but a lot of the automation stuff that other Linux distributions do are not present, and you'll find out very quickly that they're not there. And stability, I'm going to give it a 8 out of 10, just because. And the overall, I'm just going in the middle of the road, 5 out of 10, because I'll get to my final comments before I expand on that. I'm surprised about how much and how little Slackware has changed since the 90s. I can say that it is easier to use than it was back then, though it still stays true to its roots today. I think with the Slack builds and the updated Slack Package Plus and the ability to use flat packs are definite pluses for, uh, for Slackware. I'm sure the purists will be turning the nose up at flat packs, and in their defense, once you know how Slack builds work, you will not need flat pack unless the software is only available via Flatpak. I read that app images will work on Slackware, but not 100%. Again, it depends on the dependencies they were created with. Even though they're supposed to be portable, you have to remember that other uh, non-Slackware distros have other creature comforts installed that Slackware doesn't. One thing I did mention in the review that should be mentioned is the current branch. That is Slackware's rolling release, for lack of a better explanation. I would say if you have tried Arch and like the minimalist feel of it, though you don't want to uh, spend all the time compiling packages in Gentoo, I would recommend trying Slackware. And that's what I wanted to expand about, about my 5 out of 10 rating, is there are people that have installed Linux from scratch there are people that have installed Gentoo. There are people that are experts in installing Arch find Slackware tedious or hard to use. It could just be because, like I said, old habits are hard to break. But it does say something about uh, the uh, level of uh, skill needed to use uh, Slackware. So, boss, why don't you tell us about your experiences in the world of Zorin OS 16 Professional? Don't mind if I do. The distro is Zorin OS 16 Professional. Intro. First, a disclaimer. I contacted Zorin OS about doing a review of their newest system, and they responded by giving me a free key to their Professional Edition, formerly called Ultimate, a $35 value. They asked for no favors and do this for anybody who wants to review Zorin in a public forum. I really like this distro despite my great dislike of GNOME 3, but I'm certain that my review was not affected by the fact that I got a free copy. Zorin OS was initially released on July 1st, 2009. 
Their entire concept was to make the move from Windows to Linux smooth by providing a system which is very much like Windows without losing its Linuxness. It has been fairly popular despite them charging for the Pro version. Zorin developers are also known for the fact that they upstream a lot of the work they do to Ubuntu. The Zorin team offers various flavors of Zorin OS to users. There are two versions available as free downloads called Core, using GNOME, and Lite, using XFCE, with Pro versions of each of these available for download with a purchase through the project's website. There are also two educational versions. The Pro versions offer additional desktop themes that resemble different versions of Windows or Mac OS or other Linuxes, and come pre-installed with popular FOSS programs. These programs could also be added on the free version. Finally, the Pro editions of Zorin OS also provide a collection of commissioned wallpapers to choose from and installation technical support. I did try out Zorin OS 16 Lite just this morning. I do not have a Pro version of this. The desktop is XFCE. The Zorin devs recommend using the non-Lite version unless you have older hardware. The interface looks very much the same, but it takes more to configure it and requires more clicks to activate things. If you're an XFCE aficionado, you may find it to your liking, and there were no noticeable hiccups in installation or operation. RAM usage at boot was 630 megabytes. My hardware. I am using my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P, featuring an i7-4810HQ CPU, 16GB of RAM, and both Intel and NVIDIA graphics on SDB2, a partition of my 512GB SSD. Installation ease and issues. Installation was simple enough. It's the old Ubuntu installer that everyone is used to. I installed the version with NVIDIA drivers on SDB2, one of my three partitions, on my second SSD. If you're multibooting like me, Zorin may not successfully install Grub, as we discussed in Mintcast 383. Use Grub Customizer on your preferred installation to fix it. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. As I've stated before, I do not like bright pastels on the screen lock and backgrounds. I do not understand why people who much prefer dark mode in their windows have bright glaring pastels for their backgrounds and lock screens. For some reason, my T540P's brightness controls did not work, and they don't have a power control in the usual place, so I was still searching for it, and this thing hurt my eyes. I found the settings and keys work fine in Zorin Lite, so I don't know what the issue is. I thought I could find the theme settings, but they were already open in a background window which I was not aware of. Zorin did not copy the Wi-Fi password over to the installation, something Dale and I have been either pleased or irritated about, depending on various distros. My brother printer was added automatically, which is rare. I got a notice that some drivers needed updating, but an automatic update had been performed, and I wasn't sure whether it took care of that. I found an easy-to-use driver finder app, and it said I was already using the latest NVIDIA 470 driver, and I didn't need any other proprietary drivers. The system has automatic updates feature installed, so when you boot, the system will be using system resources to check for updates. During this time, you are locked out from doing updates using terminal or other resources, and it doesn't always tell you when it's through. There is a way to turn off automatic updates, but that is not recommended for new users. I open Firefox. The main page is a Zorin OS start page with Google search. After logging into Firefox and all my stuff loaded, everything looked and worked just like I expected it to. 
I did all my post-installation files, such as Ubuntu Restricted Extras and my games, GDebbie, although the Zorin Program Manager is probably based on GDebbie, and Cool Retro Terms, something I've become enamored of recently. I ran sudo apt purge libreoffice asterisk, but found it didn't actually purge everything. Then I found that Synaptic was not installed, so I installed it and completed the purge. If you like KDE Connect, Zorin Connect is basically the same thing. I don't use the app, but it's in here. The Zorin Program Manager is less strident than before about whether an unknown package is dangerous. The purpose of this warning was to teach people moving over from Windows that you should not install just any old thing that you come across, and it served its purpose. The GUI Program Manager feels a bit laggy and has a bug when it comes time to finish an app installation. I had an update to Telegram via Flatpak that never seemed to get done, but when I gave up waiting and rebooted, it was installed and ran fine. This happened a few other times and also happened on Zorin Lite. This is the worst thing that happened during the review period. But it's definitely a bug. If you want to add an app to the taskbar, you have to right-click on it in the menu and add it to Favorites. The term means something else to Plasma users, and Mate users don't even know what it means. Uh, <laughs> While Zorin is based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS, it installed with kernel 5.11 and upgraded to 5.13. You also get wobbly windows and translucent panes standard, so if you like those, you'll love Zorin. I read that Zorin updated the version to 16.1, and I looked around for how to upgrade and found that it had already been done. I like to be asked, but at least it was easy. Ease of use. Zorin runs pretty much like a reasonably well-themed version of Ubuntu GNOME, but feels friendlier. New users should have few issues with this distribution. I did have an issue with Stacer. I installed it and ran it to check for disk usage, but the next time I attempted to run it, it could not be found. I tried running it from the terminal and was told it was not installed, but then I attempted to install it and was told I already had the latest version, so it's here somewhere, but it won't run. I don't know enough about GNOME plugins to make my desktop run, such as workspaces. This was a significant issue using my system. This is not an issue on Zorin Lite. Memory and disk use. As configured, I'm using 1,031 megabytes of RAM, which is not terrible for a GNOME-based system, and Stacer reported 25.3 gigabytes used on the SSD. That seems to be quite a lot, but apparently was not bloat. A large portion of that is Flatpak libraries, and it looks like they included the entire Flathub repo. Ease of finding help. The Zorin team really wants your experience to be the best and have friendly forums and other help available. I observed the forum use, although I didn't need to use it myself. Plays nice with others. Yes, it surely does. I have had zero issues with it after using Grub Customizer as stated. Stability. I've had issues in the past with the desktop not loading after the 4th or 10th boot, but no issues at this time. Basically, it's just Ubuntu LTS with a newer kernel and some useful tools, so stability should not be an issue. Similar distros to check out, Ubuntu, Linux Mint, Makulu Linux, Robo Linux, minus the pen testing tools you pay extra for. Ratings. Ease of installation, new user 8 out of 10, experienced user 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, community and web, 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 10 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 10 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10. There are a whole bunch of little paper cuts, like I mentioned, so my overall rating is a 9 out of 10. It could have been higher.
Final comments, there's a lot to like about Zorin, and if I were on the GNOME bandwagon, this would be almost a perfect 10. If you like GNOME or XFCE desktops, you will find little reason not to switch to Zorin, and you might just keep it. Now let's run over and see what Josh has for us on Chimera OS. So... I always pronounce it Chimera OS. Is it supposed to be Chimera? Uh, it's Chimera or Chimera. Okay. Uh, you can say Chimera if you want to. You can say Chimera if you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I wasn't sure exactly how to pronounce it, so I always pronounce it Chimera. I don't know why, but that's just how I do it. I don't know everything anyhow. <laughs> I just sound like I think I do sometimes. <laughs> It's an act. Go ahead. So, uh, Camaro S is um, is not your typical Linux distro. Uh, in fact, I don't really know if you can call it a distro. Um, it's based on Steam OS 3.0 uh, and uses Steam Big Picture Mode as its UI. So, Steam Big Picture Mode is basically like any kind of like TV UI you've ever used. You know, where it's like got big buttons and you can you know easily click anything or or select them with a um, up and down and left and right arrows. Uh, this is what Camaro OS devs um, had to say about the OS. Camaro OS is an operating system that provides an out-of-the-box couch gaming experience. After installation, boot directly into Steam Big Picture mode and start playing your favorite games. If you want Steam in your living room, you want Camaro OS. Which I thought that was a pretty good uh, slogan they had there. Um, I, I, I liked that a lot. I feel like they put everything that they're about in it. So <laughs> it was it was really nice. If you want fire in your living room, you want Firefox OS. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> but you can put it out with Waterfox. <laughs> so my hardware, um, I ran this on bare metal this time. Uh, I was using my Acer Predator, Predator Helios 300 with an i7-11800H CPU, 16 gigabytes of 3200 MHz RAM, NVIDIA 3060 mobile GPU, and a Samsung Pro 840 SSD. Uh, installation ease and issues. You're first greeted with a really nice looking grub menu uh, for with the uh, Chimera logo on the top uh, if you're using your legacy BIOS. Otherwise, Grub is bypassed, and it just kind of boots into the installer. So on Grub, if you click on install, uh, then it loads in a pretty nice looking Ncurses installer. It's not like, you know, fancy because it's Ncurses, but it's, it's nicer than just the text with no colors. <laughs> the first option uh, was to select a disk. So it basically just opens up and says, what disk do you want to install this on? And uh, I selected the disk I want. It warns you to be sure that you want to select that disk because, you know, it's going to destroy everything on it. Then it downloads Chimera OS, an image of it. Um, because it is based on Steam OS, it has an immutable file system where it's all one big image um, instead of upgrading individual packages. So it basically replaces the whole system each upgrade. After downloading the image, uh, it unpacks the image and uh, then installs it all in one big, you know, just one big image. It's really nice. It's it's actually um, faster and simpler than a lot of the updates I've done with the size of it, because it's probably about like a, 
maybe like a one or two gigabyte file. So take with that what you will with different um, distros, how they update uh, the speed of that. But it was pretty fast for the size of it. But um, yeah, the installation was super simple. I mean, you can't get much easier than that. It, it basically just tells you what to do and you just select what you want. Just a note too, the installation was three or four screens. That was it. And then it was done. So it was, it was really fast and simple. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. Uh, the first thing I noticed was with my two external monitors plugged in, it actually displayed on the correct monitor that I wanted it to, which is amazing because almost nothing ever does that. Um, I'm not exactly sure why it chose that monitor though, but it did. I immediately noticed it was extremely choppy to the point where I had to use the arrow keys to navigate. Even then, the screen would only update every five seconds or so, which was really annoying. I decided to reboot and unplug my monitors to see what happened. Uh, it rebooted and all was well uh, with my laptop's built-in display. No choppiness or anything like that. It was now running as expected. Long story short, I talked to some of the people on the Camara OS Discord. I'm assuming they were the devs, but I'm not 100% sure. And they told me it was because Arch has an issue with NVIDIA Optimus graphics switching uh, when using external displays on Arch specifically. And I can confirm that because I've tried the same setup on uh, Manjaro, on um, Endeavor, and at least those two I remember. I try tried this and when you do install NVIDIA, it does get really choppy until you install Optimus and make sure that it's using only the discrete graphics and not using the switching between Intel and NVIDIA. So uh, what they told me to do to fix this issue with my multiple monitors was to edit an XOR um, configure file and then all was well and both monitors worked fine. There was no issues um, after that. I didn't really want to get into the whole what I had to do because it was quite a bit. It took us like an hour to figure everything out and get everything working, but um, it eventually did work. <laughs> ease of use. Camaro S is extremely easy to use once it's installed and is working as intended. The only reason I had the issues is because I was using my external monitors. If I was using like a TV with a desktop, I'm sure I wouldn't have the issues I had. The UI works well with a controller or mouse and keyboard. Um, either way, it, it's really nice. It, it has a mouse on there, or a cursor, I should say, that you can select things, or you can just, you know, scroll through things with your arrow keys. I really do think anyone could use this without having too much trouble, really. I uh, pretty much think as long as it's, you know, not having any boot issues or whatever, it'll boot right into Steam Big Picture, and you can just start using it. So memory and disk usage... It used about 5.6 gigabytes on my SSD. Uh, the reason for this is that it's using ButterFS and it um, compresses the files on this drive. So it probably would have been like more of a 10 gigabyte install, but it's about 5.6 um, that I saw. And then using Free-H, the memory usage was about 553 megabytes, which is pretty good. I, I, that's like KDE's, you know, memory usage on, on uh, initial boot. Ease of finding help. I say extremely easy, uh, especially if you're on their Discord. Uh, I've never had devs actually sit with me for over an hour troubleshooting a distro with me and um, actually we found a solution. Most of the time if we're talking and we're trying to figure out something, I usually don't find a solution that was, let me say, simple for me. <laughs> so that was nice. Uh, plays nice with others. 
I did not test this, but it seems to be using Grub on Legacy BIOS and Systemd boot on UEFI, so I would assume it would play well with other distros. Note you will have to use one of the F keys to switch distros with uh, using Systemd boot because it doesn't give you like a Grub option to switch different, you know, what other distros are installed. You just have to use um, F12 or F10 depending on your system. Stability, um, I had no issues with this at all, um, and it really, it gets frequent updates, so, I mean, with the immutable file system, it, it seems to be really stable. Had no issues at all. And I did leave it go quite a bit between updates, but with it downloading a whole image and replacing it, it, it really doesn't matter. If that image has an issue, it's going to have an issue no matter how long you wait. Uh, gaming ease. Uh, this is where it gets a little tricky. Um, I actually did not have a good gaming experience on Chimera OS, especially compared to Linux Mint. Most games were choppy, even easy to run ones like Valheim. The frame rates were atrocious compared to Mint, and it was night and day to Windows, really. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to say with, with that, because it was just, I don't know. It, it, anyway, <laughs> I couldn't even play a game like Metro Exodus at all. It just would stutter and be extremely slow. All this to say that I am also running NVIDIA drivers and SteamOS and Linux were not built built for them. So maybe with AMD graphics, others will have a better experience. I, I don't know. I really would like to get an AMD graphics card to test this thoroughly, but I just, I don't have one right now to really uh, uh, go through that. I would love to give this a pass for gaming, but on my hardware setup, it's definitely a no-go, unfortunately. and. I mean, Mint and Windows work fine. I have no issues gaming on those. Mint is a little slower, well, quite a bit slower than Windows. And Chimera OS is just unusable no matter what you're doing with it. I don't, I don't understand it on my hardware. The dev said that it, you know, does support, they actually put NVIDIA drivers into it. So it's not like it's not tested. So I don't, I don't know. It must be NVIDIA. That's all I can say. Uh, similar distros to check out. Uh, Steam OS, when it's released, is going to be basically the same thing, I would imagine. I don't know what's going to happen to Chimera uh, when this releases. I don't know if they're going to continue. I would assume so. I hope so. But um, yeah, I don't know exactly. So ratings. Ease of installation for a new user, 10 out of 10. Experienced user, also 10 out of 10. I mean, it was so simple. You you really couldn't screw it up unless you selected the wrong disk, which... <laughs> That would be really bad. Hardware issues. For me personally, it was a 3 out of 10 because I had a lot of, of issues initially, especially with the multi-monitor, but even just on my laptop screen, it still was choppy and didn't play games like it really should. Ease of finding help. I would say 10 out of 10, uh, especially if you get to their Discord, which is actually right on their website, so it's not that hard to get to. They will help almost immediately, no matter what time of day it is, somebody will be there. Ease of use, once you get everything installed, it's 10 out of 10 because, I mean, it's Steam Big Picture mode, which is very, very simple to use. Plays nice with others. I'm going to say an 8 out of 10 most likely plays well with others because it uses Grub and System D boot, so I'm assuming that it's not going to have too much of an issue, you know, figuring out what other dishes you have installed and everything. Stability, 10 out of 10. Didn't have any issues with this at all even with letting it go a while between updates and everything. Works with games. I say 1 out of 10. I know this is extreme, 
but I had a horrible gaming experience with this, and I, I don't usually like bashing on a distro at all. I actually really don't like it because I really like Linux, but I have to say 1 out of 10 because I had no gaming experience, to be honest. It was just not functional. So that being said, I give it an overall rating of 5 out of 10, mostly because it doesn't work well with my games, and that's really what it's made for, so that's got to count for a lot of the uh, rating. So my final comments, um, I really wanted to like Chimera OS, but it was just not meant to be. I was hoping I could maybe get a small glimpse into the Steam Deck by using this distro, but sadly I was mistaken. So uh, I guess we'll move on to new releases, right? New releases since last episode from February 15th to March 23rd. AV Linux MX21, PS Sense 2.6.0. Hunix 16.0.4, Berry 1.36, SmartOS 2022.0224, Ubuntu 20.04.4 for all versions, Kubuntu, Lubuntu, Ubuntu Budgie, Ubuntu Chillin, Ubuntu Studio, and Zubuntu, Batasera 33, Manjaro 21.2.4, Snarl 1.15, Hyperbola 0.4, Slacks 11.2.1, Nitrix 2022.02.28, Arch 2022.03.01, Freespire 8.2, Archman 2022.03, Endless 4.0.3, Exe 2022.0306, Sparky Linux 2022.03, Tails 4.28, Arco Linux 22.03.08, LibreElect 10.0.2, Zorin OS 16.1, IPFire 2.27-Core164, Elive 3.8.26, RoboLinux 12.04, Oberun 2022.03.12, LinuxFX 11.1.1108, OSMC 2022.03-1, Clear 36010, CloudReady 96.4.6, Alpine 3.15.1, KDE Neon 2022-0317, EasyOS 3.4.3, LACA 4.0, LMDE 5 LC, and BlueStar 5.16.15. In our feedback, we have none. For announcements, our next episode, beginning our third year, will be recorded around April 27th. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group, our MeWe group, or our Discord channel. Where can our listeners find you, Josh? Uh, you can find me at Josh on Tech on most social networks, uh, or e email me at joshontech at mintcast.org. Also, you can find me on the Crowbar Kernel Panic podcast. Where can our listeners find you, Dale? I'm at Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord, and you can email me at Dale underscore CDL at PM.me. Tony, what about you? Yeah, you can contact me at distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com. You can go and listen to some of my murmurings on uh, Hacker Public Radio. I'm host ID 338, and I'm on Twitter at Tony H1212. 
And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me. And my Telegram, Discord, Twitter, and Mastodon contact info can be found in the show notes. And you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. Before we go... We would like to thank all those who have made this project possible, starting with the Mintcast crew for allowing us to use their Mumble server and Discord group. Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity, which we use to record and edit the show. Joshua Lowe for work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Midair Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, used as our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stolman for the GNU toolkit, and all those who have worked hard behind the scenes on free and open source Libre software. We shall be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. <laughs>